Hello and welcome to the Culture File Weekly, a year you say what is time anyway edition. And this time we're facing up to pain with Jennifer Corns, who's been applying philosophy to our experiences of pain in the cause of alleviating some of it. Later on, nature boy Rob Long has a moment of enlightenment on the subject of elephants. But we begin this time with composer and artist Jennifer Walsh. In her latest Things Know Things, she's thinking about the protein biography of Eleanor Thornton, a woman who travels everywhere by Rolls-Royce but can never own one, as Jennifer Walsh explains. London, 1909. Lord John Edward Scott Montague, editor of The Car magazine, commissions sculptor Charles Sykes to make a mascot for the front of his Rolls-Royce Silver Ghost. Sykes makes a sculpture called The Whisper a tiny silver figure of a woman with her finger held to her lips, glooms of fabric whirling around her. The woman who modelled for the whisper was Eleanor Thornton, Lord Montague's secretary at the Car magazine. And there was a reason the tiny silver woman was telling you to keep a secret. Eleanor and Montague had been having an affair for many years, She would go on to bear him an illegitimate daughter who would be given up for adoption. The following year, Rolls-Royce commissions Sykes to make a mascot for the front of their cars. Sykes has Eleanor model for him again and he reworks the whisper into what is known as the spirit of ecstasy. Another tiny silver lady Blooms of fabric whirling around her, but this time with her arms thrown back in abandon. You've seen Eleanor, because you've seen the spirit of ecstasy. She's the mascot which adorns every Rolls Royce to this day. In 2016, a century after Eleanor modelled for Sykes, Rolls Royce launched their conceptual luxury car, the 103EX. It's an autonomous vehicle with cream silk interiors, a glass roof and a light system which creates the illusion of a red carpet unfurling from the door. The 103EX comes with a built-in bespoke AI, a voice assistant called Eleanor. Now, Rolls-Royce makes some bold claims regarding Eleanor. With Eleanor, they're going to give AI a name, a soul and a purpose for the first time. And the purpose? Well, that will be driving you, guiding you, discovering the world with you, while intuitively complementing your personality and becoming a true companion. In the 103EX concept video, AI Eleanor sounds very English, very white, very posh and presumably very gorgeous. I want to show you our vision of the future, she purrs, before describing how elegant and powerful you'll look getting out of the car. You can almost sense her presence there with you, sipping vintage champagne, her hand resting gently on your thigh as you're whisked to the gala. From secretary to mistress, from artist's model to virtual assistant. Eleanor has travelled farther than any Rolls-Royce ever will. But when she was born, 
1880. Eleanor wasn't Thornton's given first name. Her parents called her Nellie. Jennifer Walsh there on the many half-lives of Eleanor Thornton. And you heard also Gemno Pedi number one performed by Anne Kefelek. This might hurt a bit. It's a phrase full of troubling uncertainties from the might all the way to the bit. But those uncertainties are the ground from which grows the work of philosopher Jennifer Corns. Corns investigates the complexity of pain and suffering, how people experience, communicate and live with it. The area is full of juicy questions for any philosopher interested in metaphysics, the philosophy of mind or the philosophy of science. But it's also an area, she says, that promises very practical help in alleviating suffering. Culture Files' Anya Gallagher talked to Jennifer Corns about pain, the mind and the body. Ouch! Ouch! Ow. Ow. That actually really helps for most people. If you look at something beautiful, that sort of thing can also really help too. If we hurt you somewhere else on your body, that can really help too. So there are all sorts of ways you can make the pain change. You know, externally, that are pretty good across people, but then different people will have different things that also really affect their pain experiences and they'll experience it in a very different way, different degrees of intensity and also different degrees of unpleasantness. And that kind of variation and the way that pain has these different pieces that you could chunk apart, I find actually, you know, crucial to getting a better understanding of it and ultimately um, getting better treatment. My name is Jennifer Corns, and I am a lecturer at the University of Glasgow in philosophy. I was a philosophy student. I was interested in sort of everything, <laughs> which was a good thing, but it was also kind of a problem because, of course, um, in graduate school, you have to pick, you know, a particular <laughs> thing to do your, your PhD about. And I came across people who had the condition of pain asymbolia, which is a condition where people report pain, but they say they don't mind it or it doesn't bother them. Um, it seems like it doesn't hurt. And I was really fascinated by that largely because it made me try to think about what pain could be <laughs> that you could have these people were these people really in pain if it didn't hurt the reason that was philosophically interesting was because thinking about pain was a way to bring together different interests and all sorts of things pain is important of course ethically because we care about causing pain we care about treating pain it's also important for thinking about the philosophy of medicine because pain is actually so difficult to treat. It's interesting because of metaphysics, because you're interested in the nature of the thing. It's interesting because of philosophy of mind, because it looks like a kind of experience, but at the same time, it also looks like something that's happening in your body. So that's quite puzzling. So actually, because I was interested in so many different kinds of philosophy, pain turned out to be um, this really fascinating um, topic where I could bring all the different kinds of philosophy to bear on this issue that actually you know, really has practical importance. The typical test uh, in pain research is that you put your hand in some very cold water. It's called the cold presser test. And you sort of wait and keep it in there as long as you can. It's a way we test tolerance. And you also rate 
um, just how bad it is. So you say on a scale of one to 10, how intense is the pain, these sorts of things. And there is a separate measure for pain intensity. So how intense the pain is and pain unpleasantness. So how unpleasantness the pain is. So really it's it's entirely subjective. But also I guess there's the thing about uh, what came before. So the experience that causes the pain. Let's say you do like a bout of intensive exercise and then you have this discomfort afterwards. So if you're, if you remember doing the exercise, you will expect the discomfort and therefore it's, it's not painful. But if you don't actually remember doing it or, you know, let's say you just have this experience in isolation, then it becomes pain because you don't have the reference for it. Yep. So expectation matters a ton, I think particularly in how unpleasant the experience is, but also how you interpret the sensation. So when you think about pain, I think it's important to keep at least those three bits apart. So there's the sensory component, the actual sensation, if you like, and then there's the unpleasantness or what usually gets called the affect. And then there's the cognitive evaluative bit. What's going on? This is awful. I hate this. This is scary. That sort of thing. And those three things all come apart and you can fiddle with them, if you like, independently, and they'll vary from person to person for different reasons in different ways. And that's part of why you get the diversity. So not only do you get diversity for each of those three things, but you get them the way those three things come together in different people. So to your point about expectation, (laughs) um, expectation looks like it's particularly strong in modifying affect, actually, the unpleasantness of the experience. So if I tell you something is going to um, really be awful, it's more likely to be awful (laughs) Um, and vice versa. And actually, you know, the placebo effect and on the other side, the nocebo effect are the clearest sort of cases of this. So for about 30% of people, if you have a headache, a sugar pill will do you just as well as a paracetamol. <laughs> for instance, if I tell you um, it's a paracetamol, and that's obviously something like um, expectation. So my favorite case for that um, is uh, what's called the dental fear case. Um, so some people are like terrified of the dentist, of course. <laughs> and if you're terrified of the dentist and you go into one of these sort of experiments, they'll take what looks like a drill and it sounds like a drill. It vibrates like a drill, but all it does is vibrate. So it's not actually going to cause any damage, no noxious stimulation at all. And if I put that on your tooth, you will say it's extremely painful <laughs> and you'll call it pain and your experience will be as of pain, right? So you, you, you'll, you'll say that you have a pain experience even though, of course, all that's going on physically, is sensation-wise, is just this vibration. And what's interesting about that, I think, is that if I explain it to you, what happens in these cases, if you explain to people, oh, this is just vibrating, I wasn't actually you know, drilling here, then the next time you do it, even though they're still really scared, when they know that, then they no longer report it as pain, but they don't go back and say, and what I was feeling before wasn't pain. They still maintain that was pain, and now it's not. And you can have a pain experience, I think, even without any sort of damaging stimuli um, whatsoever. And so would that suggest then that the way we should really be trying to treat the majority of pain would be with the mind as opposed to medicine? I think when it comes to the treatment of pain, what we really need to do, and this is controversial, is look at the particular individual who's suffering pain it turns out is just really idiosyncratic and that means our treatment if it's going to be effective also needs to be idiosyncratic so you take the the report and you figure out which of the many mechanisms that might be best targeted are responsible in that particular case and that's not an easy thing to do 
it's wrong to say, oh, pain has this function. <laughs> Rather, you know, we've evolved to have systems that have these detective functions, and those are great. And we've evolved to have systems that have these motivational functions, and those are great. And we'll get pain, the thing that we call pain, when these things come together, you know, in a certain way that we easily recognize and identify. In philosophy, at least, there are at least three views, and then there's my more controversial view. So you might think the function of pain, the sort of more traditional view, is that it's the thing that alerts you to damage in the body. So even though in everyday life we kind of think about physical pain and mental pain, historically, medically speaking, people have focused on the physical pain as being the real pain, if you like. <laughs> the function, biologically, has been thought to be this sort of damage detection. Another function it might be is to motivate you to action. So it's not about detecting damage, it's about getting you to do something. So it's a motivational function. So what's the function of pain? Well, it's to get me to pull my hand off the stove. It's not to sort of tell me, hey, your hand's about to get burnt. It's instead to tell you, hey, get your hand off that stove. And you can see how those are slightly different functions. On my view, I actually think the problem with trying to pick out a single function of pain is the same problem we saw before in trying to pick out something like a single treatment for pain or a single area for pain or a single pathway for pain. So I think what's going on is that the different components of pain each serve different functions. So the sensory component of pain, the role there is informative, right? And that information is really valuable. Similarly, there's affect, and it sure looks to me like affect is the best candidate for something that gives you this motivational function. The unpleasantness bit is the thing that gets you to do something, right? Um, that gets you to get your hand off the stove. That looks like a really good candidate for the function of the affective bit. And again, that affective bit is sometimes a component of pain, and when it is, then pain will also have that function. It will also get you to take your hand off the stove. But I think it's wrong to say that pain itself has either one of those functions because sometimes we can have pains that don't have the affect and sometimes we can have pains that don't have the sensation. And we can certainly have some pains that don't have both of those. The language around pain is so basic. I guess that makes your research quite interesting and difficult to try and gauge what someone's actually trying to say or describe. I think that's a really important question because it is quite difficult. One thing that might explain that is when I'm telling you that I'm in pain, even something like, ouch, that hurts. But certainly when I'm saying, ah, I have this horrible pain in my head, or you think I go to the doctor and I say, oh, I have this pain in my toe. What I'm telling you is there's this thing happening, <laughs> this very complex thing that I need help for. All pain is, is this really complex experience. If I want to get in there and help you, or I want to start being able to talk about it, if I want to get to a place where I've got more language, I have to get more specific. And now we can focus on which thing I'm talking about. So I can now start talking instead about my emotions surrounding my toe. So I can look at that cognitive value bit. And then notice we have all sorts of language for that. So I can talk about my fear in great detail, or I can talk about my anxiety. You know, we learn how to have these sorts of conversations. Or I can talk about the unpleasantness, so I can talk about how sore it is, when it's sore, what makes it sore. I can also talk about the sensations themselves. Is it tingly? Is it burny? You know, there's words there. So it's true. We don't have a lot of words, I think, certainly in English. Um, and to my knowledge, not many others. I've only looked at a few other languages and have yet to find a language where there are quite a lot of descriptions about the pain itself. However, we do have in English and in other languages quite a lot of words to talk about unpleasantness, quite a lot of words to talk about our emotions and our evaluations, quite a lot of words to talk about our sensations. So I think the fact that we have 
quite a lot of vocabulary for these things that on my view are really the things we should be focusing for treatment. That can be a big help to us. You know, even when you treat, you know, <laughs> the, the pains of your children or something at home, right? If they say something like, I have an owie, well, you don't stop there. You don't sort of focus on owiehood. You sort of say, well, where is it and what happened and what does it feel like? And then they've got all sorts of ways, you know, of telling you about that, that will let you figure out what to do. But just knowing it's a pain, you know, that's, as I say, I think that's been part of the problem. Just knowing it's a pain or just knowing it's an owie. It's true, there's not much more to say or to do. You know, that doesn't really give you a lot of information. Um, you have to sort of break it down in order to figure out what you can do about it or how to talk about it um, as well. Those come together, I think, not coincidentally. think there's maybe a few things that we should try ourselves a few more like self-soothing methods yes I think we should I think to some extent we we already do so in some ways I think everyday people tend to be already better than <laughs> academics or sometimes medical people you know if you really listen to a person who's been dealing with pain for a long time, certainly chronic pain, you know, people kind of know what works for them and have a real sense of their own bodies and their own minds and what to do about it. But if people are struggling, I mean, simple things, right? Things like deep breaths and stretching and massaging and taking a bath, <laughs> you know, these things are things that target the sensory aspects of things in your body. The unpleasantness itself is something else that you can fiddle with Think about counterbalancing nasty experiences with pleasant experiences that can make a difference. So putting on some music that you like. One of my favorite stories of somebody who had chronic pain, there was a person who had terrible chronic pain and they learned how to play the piano. And this pain that they'd suffered for years and years um, went away. <laughs> they sort of healed by enjoying this music. So there's an affective side of things that I think in some ways is the least obvious, but also those are real, I think, serious interventions that can matter for some serious pains, both, both physical and psychological. We're quicker to do things that numb, which is not quite the same. So that, that's something else, of course, we can do, and it's something we often do. So there's a kind of escapism or anesthetic. So when you have a drink, <laughs> you know, you don't, you don't just dull the affect, you kind of dull everything. That's a different kind of intervention than an, a genuinely straight-up positive experience where you're seeking something that you know gives you positive affect or gives you direct pleasure, as opposed to something that sort of flattens everything out. Those are different. So television, too, or like movies. Sometimes those things give us positive pleasure, especially if there's something in particular that we want to watch. Sometimes those kind of things are things that right flatten out our affect. We kind of tune off, <laughs> tune out, turn all the affect down. After doing a bunch of work on the placebo effect and the nocebo effect a few years ago, I really tell myself now when I take medicine, this is going to help me. <laughs> and just telling myself that, even though I know that what I'm doing is engaging the cognitive mechanisms in my brain, and that's going to have a sort of downstream effect on the sensory affective mechanisms, that is what's happening and it works. And if you tell yourself something's going to be great or you tell yourself something's going to be terrible, that can really make it better or worse for you. And the same is true for pain. Telling yourself 
that this thing is going to help what can actually make it help and that gets a bad rap like you're it's you're being tricked or something because there's a sort of history of you know homeopathy and some other things that we're now quite distrustful of and it's true people shouldn't make claims about their interventions that aren't true <laughs> or aren't accurate but here's a claim about interventions that's true for all interventions which is what you believe about what you're doing affects how your body processes what it's taking in because your beliefs are part of your brain body complex your beliefs matter for how you feel Um, so the more you can use that to your advantage you know the better philosopher jennifer corns there and the reporter was onya gallagher and dr corns book the complex reality of pain is out now It's a jungle out there, or at least a savannah. One way or the other, it's fraught with peril and learning outcomes. Rob Long has been on safari recently, where the gazelle and the antelope play, only to discover that biosphere is not entirely unfamiliar, as we hear now in his latest martini shot. This is Rob Long with Martini Shot. Late at night, when I'm bored or distracted, I usually kill a few hours by Googling myself. Let me rephrase that, actually. Late at night when I'm bored or distracted, I usually kill a few hours by plugging my name into Google and seeing what comes up. Yeah, that sounds better. It's what psychiatrists would call the act of a narcissist, but not the act of a malignant narcissist, which is a whole other category. And for me, that makes it okay. But aside from finding out what nasty things people are saying about you across the interwebs, you occasionally find out what nice things people are saying. And so a few years ago, during some late night self-googling, Please wipe that smirk off your face. I discovered that a technology entrepreneur was using my first book, Conversations with My Agent, as a sort of business textbook. He had said some nice things about it. So, again, being a narcissist but not malignantly so, I sent him an email to thank him. And that was a while ago. And in the ensuing years, we've become friends, which was lucky for me because a few months ago, he and his wife invited me along for an African safari, which just proves that if you Google yourself enough good things can happen. The only drawback was, before I left, I really had to be honest with him. Look, I said, I'd love to go. It seems like fun, but I've I've never been one of those wild animal kind of people. I've never thought to myself, hey, I wish I could see an elephant up close. Elephants, lions, leopards, you know, 
okay, just not on my list of things I have to do before I die. So if there's someone else in your life who really needs to see a cheetah through a pair of binoculars, I said to him, you know, don't hesitate to dump me and take them. And he laughed at me. He has been on many safaris, so he knows one thing. People never really know what they're in for. People think it's like a deluxe kind of zoo. You see lions, and then you move along, and you see some zebras, and it's all packaged up and static, and then you're drinking a cocktail on a veranda and putting the SD chip into your computer. And that is certainly what I thought. So I'll get the cliche response out quickly. I was wrong. It was incredible. I saw them all, the lions and the leopards and whatnot, but what made it so stunning was that it wasn't at all like a fancy zoo because they were all together, sharing the grass and the landscape and existing together in an uneasy tension. The gazelles were grazing, and they knew the lion was near. The antelopes and the zebras could smell the leopard, but they pretty much stayed there, alert but fatalistic. Look, if the lion is hungry, I'm going to get eaten. Meanwhile, I'm just going to stand here and enjoy my salad. In other words, not that different from Hollywood. It turns out that I went a very long way to discover that animal behavior on the African plain is basically what I see every day in Los Angeles. Well, it's different in one respect. The animals are a lot more honest about what's really going on. I mean, the lioness, after devouring a zebra doesn't post a tweet saying something like, I am deeply sorry for the hurt and pain. My actions have caused the entire zebra community, and I am taking a step back to reflect on my actions and listen and learn. Please respect my privacy at this time. The male lion just sits regally on the grass like a movie star. The gazelles dash around like terrified assistants. Warthogs, I learned, back into their little warthog holes to make it easier to leap out if necessary, which is exactly the kind of defensive paranoia that makes them the studio executives of the African wilderness. The buffalo walk around like they own the place, which makes them dues-paying members of the Director's Guild of the Safari. Like directors, they're big and powerful and never without something on their heads. The buffalo have horns, the directors have headphones, but the look is the same. And like Hollywood directors, the buffalo don't seem to understand that as powerful and violent as they might be, they're still second to the lion, who we notice has not moved from his zen stillness on the grass. The animals who live off someone else's kill are easier to identify. The hyenas are the producers who do occasionally make their own food. Not often, but it's happened. The jackals are the managers and publicists. The vultures, of course, are the agents. Baboons are entertainment industry journalists, always in a noisy group. I recognized them all. It was like I'd never left home. I even saw myself out in the bush. Writers are rhinos. Endangered, only accidentally lethal, not really attractive. Everyone else gives them wide berth. They seem the most prehistoric of all the wild African animals, and they're disappearing quickly. So... Yeah, they're writers, all right. Everything in the African bush reminded me of the people I work with every day, and I'm sure that's not specific to Hollywood. We all see plenty of lions and jackals and vultures and gazelles in our work and our life. Except elephants. 
By nature, they're loyal and thoughtful. They remember kindnesses done to them, and astonishingly, they do kindnesses to each other and to the humans they encounter. In general, they are peaceful and unhurried and generous. They're strict and loving with their offspring. They mourn their dead. They remember their friends, and they are capable of real affection. They don't really exist in the Hollywood Wild Kingdom. I wish they did. I hope your kingdom has plenty of elephants, although I suppose since we all need more elephants in our lives, maybe some of us should just start acting more like elephants and less like, say, warthogs. And that's it for this week. Next week, we develop good habits, or we try anyway, for a martini shot. This is Rob Long. Wherever you go, there you are. And that martini shot brings to an end this edition of the Culture File Weekly. We'll be back with more Safari Satori next Saturday at 6.30pm and in the Culture File Daily at 6.10 each weekday in Classic Drive. Till then, bye now.